Okay, there we go. We have a lot going on this morning. Uh, we're still going to have communion. Hopefully we have time for a quick message here. Um, one of my heroes of the faith and one of my favorite preachers to, to listen to is uh, Pastor Dave Briggs, for obvious reasons. Um, and did you ever notice how he starts his sermons? He starts his sermon the same way every time, with a question. And when I grow up, I want to be David Briggs, so <laughs> let's start with a question. Do any of you have prescription medication for anything? Mickey has a dealer, he said. I don't know. <laughs> Did you notice there were instructions on the bottle? Why? It doesn't say, you know what? If you feel like it, take one. If you don't, you might take the whole bottle one day and not feel like taking any the, <clears throat> the next day. There are prescriptions for the prescription. What would you call somebody that opened their medicine cabinet and said, you know what, I like the green ones. I'll have a few of those. No, that would be foolish, right? You want to follow the instructions on the prescription for our health to keep us, it's to help us keep you alive, right? The prescription is not to restrict you, but to help you. And that's how we need to see the laws of God. God gave us his laws, his commandments for our benefit, for our good. Um, now, this morning's message is very simple. It's not complicated. It's not going to strain your brain. There's no deep theological truths or dots we're going to connect. The message, basically, is that God loved us. He gave us his word, and our response is obedience. That's the whole message. So we could leave a little early, but we've got a few more minutes. So... Moses is now 120 years of age, and he's speaking to a new generation of Israelites. In a few weeks, Moses will be dead. I don't know if this has been mentioned before, but the whole book of Deuteronomy from beginning to end is six weeks long. This is the last six weeks of Moses' life. The whole book's only six weeks long. We've been in Deuteronomy, we're about a third of the way through. We've been in 12 weeks and have a great deal to go. Um, so here's Moses. He's facing the children of Israel. He's facing the Jordan River. He's facing a land that he will not get to enter in. And he's reviewing their history to them, reminding them of the laws that they are to uphold and to keep. Now, God gave his laws to his people to demonstrate his love. And sometimes people see the laws of God as restrictive. God's trying to cramp my style. He doesn't want me to have fun. But God's laws are not given to restrict us. They're given to us to benefit us. So, this morning we'll be finishing chapter 11. We took the first half last week. Now, this is the end of the second major section in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapters 5 through 11, is God, Moses, telling us about 
God's mutual love, God's love for his people on one hand and their obligation to keep his laws. That's the response. So we are going to go through chapter 11, if you would turn there in your Bibles with me. We're going to start with verse 1. Our text will be 18 through 32, but in verse 1, God starts with a loving God. Verse 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Once again, we see Moses here stressing that you can, cannot separate love and obedience. And we'll see that in every chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. An Israelite's test of his love for God was his obedience to the Lord God. It's about loving God and responding to God's love. And the response to God's love is obedience. Moses makes it clear in chapter 11 that the real issue is a heart issue. And Jesus told us in John 14, 21, the one who has my commandments and keeps them, that one is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. Twenty-five times, almost every chapter, the Lord tells us in the book of Deuteronomy how much he loves his people and what their response should be. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus said, that is the greatest commandment of all. In fact, that's the summary of all of God's laws and commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said. So it's all about falling in love with him. And once he has your heart, he has your obedience. So that's the priority, the priority of loving God with all your heart. That's why our relationship with the Lord is far more important than rules and regulations. We can keep all the laws we want, but that won't make us any closer to the Lord. He wants you and your heart. So our text starts with verse 18 of chapter 11. It says, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. So whenever there's a therefore, we need to know what the therefore is Therefore. So this is a continuing thought from the verses we had last week. In the first 15 verses of chapter 11, Moses is referring to what God has done for them, how he's loved them, how he's kept them, how he's treated them, especially in the past, where they had come from, Egypt and slavery, where they were going, the promised land. He says he's going to watch over them, he's going to give them a land that was going to produce abundantly, and he's even going to water it for them. Then in verses 16 and 17, he warns them that their hearts could be easily deceived and turned into idolatry, and then they would lose it all. Therefore, to avoid this removal from the land, 
And to be blessed by God, they needed to do what? Verse 18. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, talking to them. When you sit down in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Those are the instructions on the bottle of medicine. To keep them healthy and to keep them out of trouble. They're there because God loves you. So now we follow those instructions to show that we love God. See, only by letting the Word of God occupy every area of their lives and their homes and teaching the Word to their children could that nation hope to escape temptation to find false worship. And that word there, impress, a better way to translate that might be to install them on your heart and soul, to fix them, to attach them. And the same principles apply to us Christians today. Commitment to know and obey God's scriptures. And that keeps us from modern-day forms of idolatry and false worship. In the third chapter of 2 Timothy... Paul was comparing evil men and deceivers with Timothy, who had impressed the word of God on his heart and soul. It says in verses 14 through 17, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and from that childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The knowledge of God's word is a foundation for spiritual discernment. Paul tells us in Romans 15, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. Back to Deuteronomy 11. Eighteen, you shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. Bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be frontals on your forehead. I think the idea here is pretty simple, because he begins with, you do with your heart and soul. In other words, the truth of Scripture should govern every aspect of their lives, thought, their words, their deeds. And Paul exhorted Christians to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Everything should be governed by his word. That's really the idea here. And the Jews took this very literally and still do. If you go to an Orthodox community, you will see these ornate boxes on their heads. Um, and, and Jesus' day kind of got out of control, and he said, 
They make broad their phylacteries, so they're having a contest. Who's got the biggest, the most ornate, showing who's the most godly. Verse 19 says, You will teach them to your children, speaking to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. So put these words in your heart, put them in your soul, and put them everywhere that they may be reminders to you and your children to walk after God. As parents, we look for every opportunity as a teaching lesson. Notice the church is something that goes on in your home all the time. This is the key for God's design for life. The word was to occupy their attention as the source of everything. What's the job of a leader in the church? Exodus 18, Moses is speaking with his father-in-law about his duty as a leader, and he said, I do make them know the statutes of God and his law. In other words, as leader of Israel, my job boils down to this. I let the people know the law of God. And that's what Moses is doing here in his final days of his life. In a few weeks, they would be entering their new land. And Joshua gives this wonderful instruction in Joshua 1, verse 8. The book of the law, that's the Bible, shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. The Lord instructed his people over and over again clearly about how they were to obey his words. Pastor Drew told us that everyone up here preaching through the book of Deuteronomy has basically been repeating the same thing. Why? Because Moses kept repeating the same thing. And actually, he did stutter. The Israelites needed a constant reminder, and so do we. One of my favorite epistles in the New Testament is 2 Peter. Shortly before Peter's death, these were his last written words. 2 Peter 1, 12-15. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you have already known them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me, and I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter says, I know you already know these things. I'm just reminding you. Peter's last words was reminding them of things they already knew. And I read a statistic here that's kind of disturbing, and I'm hoping it's not true. It says, the study that within an hour... After hearing a spoken message, people forget 90% of what was said. 
so before you get to your car in the parking lot, it's not good. But certainly God knew that when he said to Israel, Hear, O Israel, in spite all the warnings God has given his people throughout the centuries, Israel has had a great memory for the wrong things and a poor memory for God's truth. Now, when Jesus spoke of sanctification of a believer, the holiness of a believer, the night before his crucifixion, his torture and crucifixion, in John 17, 17, he's praying to the Father, and he's asking his Father to sanctify his people. Sanctify them by thy truth, he says. He's saying, make them pure, make them holy. Set them apart to yourself and do it by your truth. And then in that same verse, he says, thy word is truth. So the full holiness and sanctification of a believer is the work of the word of God. Now Israel was about to cross over Jordan and they needed to separate themselves from idolatry in the land in Canaan. And that only can be done by the word of God and obedience to his word. They were going into battle with very powerful enemies, far more powerful than they were. They needed a very powerful weapon. And Hebrews 4 tells us what that weapon is. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword. Talk about a weapon. That's the greatest weapon there is. The word of God. There's no weapon like the word of God. It says it pierces as far as the dividing of soul and spirit. In other words, it gets way down into the heart and soul and the nature of a person. Not only able to reach as far as far as the soul and the spirit, but it says the joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. When Jesus was speaking with the religious leaders, he told them the reason you guys make mistakes, the reason you're wrong, is because you don't know the word and you don't know the power of God. So to know the word is to know the power of God. When the devil came, to Jesus to tempt him. What did Jesus do? How did he deal with the devil? Did he say, I bind you, I condemn you, I send you to the pit? Did he give him some kind of formula like that? How did he deal with it? Very simple. Three different temptations. In every case, what did he do? He said, it is written. That's the formula. That's the power of God was expressed in the word of God. And when the temptations were over, the devil left him. And as a footnote, when he dealt with him, it was out of the book of Deuteronomy. How about Job? What a testimony he gives to the word of God. Here's a man who lost everything. The devil came to him, took his land, took his animals, took his crops, killed his entire family, took his health away from him. Here's a man in total destitution. Chapter 23 of Job, he says, Neither have I gone back 
from the commandments of his lips. I didn't stop obeying his word. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. What a statement. The word of God has a higher priority to me than eating. And that's why Job could endure what he endured. And at the end of his trial, he gave the glory to God. We people struggle with all kinds of problems in this life. And it may be something as basic as our priorities in our life. Back to Deuteronomy 11. What would be the reason or the motivation they were to keep and teach God's word? Verse 21. So that the days and the days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. See, obedience was the lease agreement for them to remain in the land. So how would that apply to us today? That those who live by the word and obey the word of God will never lack blessings in their lives all the way to the end of their lives. Verse 22. For if you're careful to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and hold fast to him. So here we have uh, another description of obedience. And there's four parts to this. He describes obedience as four different actions. First, he says, for if you will be careful to do all this commandment I will give to you. So here we are told to follow the whole commandment. And the familiar words in Deuteronomy, be careful to do, to keep guard, be another way to watch. It appears here again, 29 times Moses is telling his people in this book to be careful to do God's word. Almost every chapter tells us the same thing. And number two, Moses says, loving the Lord your God. So this reminds us that our life of obedience isn't some duty to perform. It's a labor of love. It's a response. And third description is walking in all his ways. A reminder that obedience is a daily step-by-step process of doing only what God wants us to do. And fourth description points to the heart attitude of our devotion to God, holding fast to him. So in verse 23... We see God's part. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your border will be from the wilderness to Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, as far as the western sea. God intended Israel to occupy all the way, if you look, there's a map on the screen, all the way to Iraq, Jordan, Iran, part of Syria, Lebanon, all the way down into Egypt. That's 300,000 square miles is the land that God promised and gave to Israel. Even at the high point in their history, under David and Solomon, they never possessed more than one-tenth of what God gave them. Why? Verse 24. Their part. They didn't do their part. It says, Every place on which the soles of your feet shall tread 
shall be yours. It was given to them by God. They were to enjoy it, but they failed to walk on it, claim it. And I think this can be a sad parallel sometimes in our lives for Christians. Do we ever possess all that God has for us? All that God has given to us? All that God would do for us? How many times do we fail to possess all that God has given us? For different reasons. You can make your list. Fear, disobedience, intellectual limitations, restrictions that we place on God. So many reasons we fail to enter into the fullness of God's blessings that he has for our lives. Sometimes I hear us pray, Lord, give me more power. Give me more love. Give me more of your Holy Spirit. We don't need more. We don't need one ounce more. He's given us everything that we need. We, he's given us all that we need. We just need to know what we have and how to use it. Peter says about divine power in first chapter of Second Peter, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So by them you can become partakers of his divine nature. The problem is we don't know. We don't read the bank book. We don't know sometimes how spiritually rich we are. It would be like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates out on the street asking for spare change. God makes it real clear in the book of Ephesians. He has blessed all believers with spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Some of us believers claim those blessings. Some of us don't claim those blessings. Some of us enjoy it. Some of us don't. It's a matter of appropriating what we already have and what we possess Paul tells us in Ephesians, God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or can even think. God wants to bless us more than we want to be blessed. Verse 25, no man will be able to stand before you. The Lord your God will set the Lord your God will lay the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set foot as he has spoken to you. Well, this happened, didn't it? They didn't think it was possible 38 years ago when they went into the land, the ten spies. They said, there's giants in the land, and we're just puny. They'll never be afraid of us, and we're terrified of them. But the, in fact, the exact opposite happened. If you remember in Joshua 2, when they went in, they met a gal named Rahab, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the dread and terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up 
the water of the Red Sea before when you, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in man any longer because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above, and on earth. I'm sure the two spies went, what? I wish we would have known this 38 stinking years ago. They should have known it, right? Because Joshua and Caleb told them that the Lord was going before them. They didn't believe it, so they suffered in the desert for 40 years. And so we know that God goes before us. For if God is for us, who could stand against us, says Romans 8. Therefore, we have no valid reason to be afraid. Verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. And a curse if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. Israel was commanded to obey. Obedience was at the very heart of the matter. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's the way it always is. God sets before us two paths there are. A blessing and a curse. And we can choose either one. Now, it isn't that God curses you. It's that life has a curse, that lifestyle has a curse upon it already. You're already cursed. And that's the warning God has given us. <clears throat> so, example, if you, were, if you were constantly warning a person that the path that they were taking, at the end of that path was a pit of quicksand, and they kept going down that path, and as they keep meeting people on that path... Everybody they met was warning them, hey, there's quicksand down there. Don't go down there. And they get down to the end, they get sucked into the quicksand, and as they're getting, he's going under, he's cursing everybody that he met along the way for not stopping him. That wouldn't be right, right? See, God's warned us where the path is leading, and if we go to destruction, it isn't God that sent us there. It's that we deliberately went there in spite of all of God's effort to keep us from there. And actually, Jesus laid down his life before the gates of hell. And you've got to cross over his body to get there, tells us Hebrews. Hebrews 10 tells us you've got to trample underfoot the Son of God and regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified to get into hell. He's done everything he can to stop you. You can't blame God, only our stubborn rebellion. Verse 29, it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you enter to possess that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. They, are they not across the Jordan west of the way towards the sunset? In the land of the Canaanites who live in Arabah, opposite Gilgal, besides the Oak of Mari? It's a question mark, so the answer is yeah. I don't know how they would have known that. They hadn't been there yet. But. 
And verse 31, For you are about to cross the Jordan and go in and to possess the land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall possess it and live in it. And you shall be careful, there it is again, to do all the statutes and the judgments which I am setting before you today. So here's the deal. Once they get into the land, there's a ritual they have to perform. There's two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. To the south, Mount Gerizim. To the north, Mount Ebal. And so the 12 tribes are to split up. Six on one mountain, six on the other. And then the valley in between is Joshua, the priests, and the Levites. And there is a photo of those two mountains today. The valley in between. So the priest would shout out a certain commandment, which was attached a blessing. And all the tribes of Gerizim would say, Amen. And then on the other mountain, they would do the same thing, except the command is with curse, something they weren't supposed to do. And they would say, Amen. So they'd have a blessing, say, Amen, and cursing, say, Amen. So by doing that, this nation was acknowledging what was right and wasn't, wasn't right. And they would know when, if they were going to be cursed or blessed. They knew God's word. Pretty graphic demonstration to get the point. Now you say, well, what a bummer to be on Ebal, full of curses. Well, not necessarily because there was something on Ebal that wasn't on Gerizim. And if you read the last part of chapter 8 of Joshua, you can read this story here. See, on Mount Ebal was an altar. And what's the altar for? Sacrifices. I love this, because where there's a curse, God has provided an altar. I'm glad about it, because I've been on both sides of the valley. I've had blessings, but I've also wandered over to Ebal. And I'm so grateful for the altar. For the forgiveness of my sin and my stupidity. You see, you and I were born with a curse. A blood curse called sin. And the only is one prescription to remove that sin. And that's the altar of God, the cross, where God provided his son as a substitute and shed his blood to die for the forgiveness of my sin and your sin. And we, like the Israelites, can choose a blessing or a curse. God sets up these reminders for them. Now, we don't go to two mountains, but we do come here to saturate ourselves in the Word of God, to expose ourselves to the Word of God. And we need that to remind ourselves constantly. All they need, needed, and all we need to have a blessed life is do not forget and obey God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord, that is a, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord. I just pray now, Lord, that this week that you'd go with us, Lord, and give us a hunger, Lord, and an appetite for your word. Lord, give us, give us the strength, Lord, and teach us how to obey. 
We just thank you for this time now in the name of Jesus. Amen.